Now we come to our reading, taken this morning from Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 17. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways, in the life you once lived. But now you must rid yourself of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you are called to peace. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. And as you sing psalms, hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God, the Father, through him. Amen. This past week or so, it really feels as if spring has arrived, doesn't it? We are finally leaving the winter behind us. Will anyone miss it? The poet Edith Sitwell describes winter in such glowing terms, you could almost begin nostalgically to wish for its return. She says, winter is the time for comfort, for good food and warmth, for the touch of a friendly hand and for a talk beside the fire. It is the time for home. And she has a point. If home is a good place to be, we don't mind that much staying inside during the winter months. What does it mean to feel completely at home? One dictionary says that to feel at home means to be at ease, comfortable, relaxed, content, confident, at peace, in one's element. Okay, so that's the case. What are we to make of Colossians 3.16, which says we should let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, which means allowing the word of Christ to be 
at home in our lives. We are called to allow the word of Christ to dwell in our hearts, to inhabit our beings, to occupy our mind and our soul. The rabbis said that whoever dwells in a home is master of the house, not just some passing guest. So if we are to allow the word of Christ completely to inhabit our lives, that means going beyond just giving the word of Christ a kind of slot in our busy schedules, a little bit of mental space. It means allowing his word to govern our hearts and our minds, to guide and direct who we are and how we live. Only if we submit to the word of Christ in that way will we find that the word of Christ dwells in us richly. But if we ignore the word of Christ, we banish it to some small, insignificant corner of our lives, then our hearts won't be a true home to Christ's word. And it won't flourish and prosper in our lives. And we ourselves will remain unaffected by it. Its presence in our lives will be fruitless. And that's not what God wants. In some way and at some point, preferably on a daily basis, the Lord wants you to allow his word to engage with your life. For you to read it or listen to it. Ponder and meditate upon it. Make it the basis for your prayers and the basis for how you live. Sometimes that will mean wrestling with it, trying to make sense of it, trying to figure out how it applies or sometimes how it does not apply to your situation. It's when we do that that the word of Christ begins to dwell in us abundantly as it infiltrates every area of our lives, affects every aspect of our being, makes itself at home in every room in our hearts. Edward Schweitzer wrote that the word of Christ is not something that one becomes aware of and then possesses. It is something that dwells in a person and can do so either richly or feebly. In other words, its presence can make itself felt either hardly at all or else by completely permeating a person. It lives then for the very reason that Christ himself lives in it. So a question then. In your life, does the word of Christ dwell in you richly or feebly? How much of a say does it get in terms of how you live? How much does it influence who you are? And it's worth pondering that claim that Christ's word lives because Christ himself lives in it. If you're a Christian, then Christ lives in you. How much of a say does he get in your life? Can he make himself heard with all the racket that's going on in your heart? Have you even gagged him and locked him away in a cupboard somewhere so he can't interfere? If Christ is in you, then the extent to which you welcome his presence is directly proportionate to the extent to which you allow his word to flourish and be at home in your heart. If he lives in your life, he wants to have a say in what goes on. And if he's at home in your heart, then you would do well to listen and pay attention 
to what he has to say. And the rest of Colossians 3.16 explores two different ways in which we manifest how the word of Christ indwells our lives abundantly. The first is this. If the word of Christ dwells in us richly, then we will have the wisdom to know how to teach and admonish ourselves and each other. Seems pretty obvious when I say it, but it needs spelling out. The word of Christ dwells in us richly when we apply it, first of all, to our own lives. The word of Christ should inform our understanding. Our understanding of God, of ourselves, of the world in which we live. I'm not trying to say that we should ignore or disparage the 2,000 years of knowledge and understanding that have developed since the Bible was written. But nevertheless, if God really did enter this world in the person of Jesus Christ, if that is the unique and definitive revelation of God, then the Bible is the uniquely authoritative witness to that. And as such, it is irreplaceable in terms of enabling us to understand who God is. And if God is the creator of everything that exists, then our understanding and perception of God will necessarily affect our understanding and perception of ourselves as the people he's made and the world in which we live. This book is a rich source of wisdom. Wisdom to know how to live life well. And as we face what looks like a potentially increasingly uncertain and unstable future, we will need all the wisdom we can get. And the wisdom the word of Christ offers is practical as well as theological. It invites us not just to reflect on what we believe about God, but about how we live in practice. And if we are to implement this wisdom and live it out in practice, that will mean a change in lifestyle sometimes. There will be times when the word of Christ will show us where we are going wrong. And if it does that, then prayerful reflection will also enable us to hear how Christ is telling us to get back on the right path again. Because he never leaves us at a dead end. But we're called to apply the word of Christ not just to ourselves, but also to each other. And that requires sensitivity. But one of the ways in which his word indwells us abundantly is that we teach and admonish each other in all wisdom. We are called to walk together and watch over each other as we do so. And where we see someone else straying off the path, we are humbly and lovingly to offer to help to get them back on track again. And it's fascinating to me, as a minister, who feels he has a gift and a calling to teach God's word, that this verse seems to indicate that this business of teaching and admonishing each other is something we are all called to do. It's a mutual and corporate way of expressing concern for each other. He doesn't say, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you listen to what the preacher up the front is telling you to do. No, we are all engaged in instructing each other and keeping each other on track. That's why last week, actually, was a real blessing to me because I wasn't preaching. 
And yes, there was the occasional tongue-in-cheek about, oh, having a day off today then. But actually it was great for me, as a minister, to listen to good expositions of God's word by people who aren't ministers, but members of the congregation. So last week in the morning, Ian spoke. In the evening, three of our young people spoke, bringing us practical teaching from God's word and applying it to our lives. An aspect of those messages were challenging. The clear call in the morning to forgive each other as God in Christ has forgiven us. The call in the evening to recognise how being called to peace as members of a single body means no more doing your own thing. And for me, the fact that those messages were communicated so effectively, not by me, nor by Jack as our other minister, but by members of the congregation, is a measure of the extent to which we allow the word of Christ to indwell us richly. Because we are able to bring the word of Christ to each other. If all that happens in terms of teaching is that Jack or I talk from the front and you are passive listeners, that means the word of Christ is not going to indwell us very richly at all. The word of Christ bears fruit as we all welcome Christ and his word into our own hearts and allow that to work its way out again as we humbly and gently enable others to see how the word of Christ applies to them too. So if one of the measures of the richly indwelling word of Christ is our capacity to teach and instruct and admonish ourselves and others in all wisdom, the other way in which the word of Christ prospers in the congregation is through our worship. As we sing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, with gratitude in our hearts to God. Worship is only worship if it comes from our hearts. For it to be genuine, our worship of God has to originate within the core of our being. Not just the words that we say, it's the meaning we invest in them by the way in which we think about them and express the reality of what's going on inside. And it's God's word that generates that understanding of who God is. And when we understand who God is and what he's done, it's that word that allows the Holy Spirit to produce within us gratitude that finds expression in heartfelt praise and worship. Like most translations, the New International Version talks about worship expressing gratitude here. But the word used actually might mean in grace. In other words, it's the knowledge of God's generous goodness towards us that we don't deserve that inspires our answering response of praise and worship and adoration. It's worth being aware of that added dimension to the word's meaning. What do we have to be grateful for? First and foremost, for God's grace towards us. His goodness to us when we don't deserve it. His goodness which continues consistently to us, no matter whether up or down, he is constant in grace towards us. When we get it wrong, his grace is there to cover all our sin. It's a word that encapsulates both the overwhelming generosity of God's love and goodness towards us, and also our answering response of gratitude and worship. God, you've been so good to me. Thank you. Thank you. And in a fascinating insight into the worship of the early church, Colossians expects that gratitude to be expressed in singing. 
Perhaps I should have got a member of the worship group to preach on this this morning, actually thinking about it, putting into practice what I'm talking about, bringing the word of God to each other. But they, they're the people who know what it means to, to lead others in worship and singing. Christians have always sung in our worship, and with good reason. Singing is a great way of expressing praise because music has the capacity to add meaning and emotional depth to the words that we sing. And while we can't be sure precisely what is meant by psalms, hymns and spiritual songs in this passage and what the difference between them might have been, the fact that we find three different expressions used here to express what the Christians in Colossae were supposed to sing suggests variety, difference. They weren't singing the same kind of stuff year in, year out. It wasn't all Green Baptist hymn book stuff. Psalms might have been psalms from the Old Testament set to music. Originally the psalms were sung, we know that. Hymns may well have been songs composed by Christians themselves. There is a well-established school of thought that sees Colossians 1, 15-20 as a hymn to Christ, that people debate that. Spiritual songs might be more spontaneous expressions of praise. Some denominations see a reference to singing in tongues here. That suits their theology and style of worship. We, we may not, we may prefer not to. We just don't know, but it's perfectly possible. At the end of the second century, Tertullian described a worship service in which each person is asked to stand forth and sing, as they can, a hymn to God, either one from the Holy Scriptures or one of their own composing or from their own hearts. That could take quite a while, couldn't it? In the history of church hymnody, you can trace a progression through the centuries from metrical psalms to hymns written with separate notes on the stave for soprano, alto, tenor and bass, through the recent explosion in the more informal songwriting that's taken place in recent decades. And in Colossians, we are told to sing them all, and to sing them all from the heart. And some of us need grace to do that. But what matters is not so much the words or the tune. What matters is whether the worship is rooted in the depths of personal experience and springing up from that source, heart worship and not merely lip worship. And what strikes me is the togetherness of all this. We worship from the heart together. We teach and admonish each other from the word of Christ with all wisdom. And where that happens, the church grows. Where that happens, the word of Christ flourishes as it indwells us as a congregation of God's people. And where that happens, most important of all, Christ is at home here in our midst, as Lord. He is in his element among us, as his word dwells richly in us, as we keep each other online, and as we sing together psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs of worship. As we gather Sunday by Sunday to receive his word and worship him as our risen Lord and Saviour, Christ says, this is where I belong. This is where I'm glad to be with my people.
So as we want Christ to be comfortable among us as our Lord, let's allow his word to infiltrate every part of our beings and flow out from, it, from ourselves to each other in terms of keeping each other on track and from our hearts to him in heartfelt praise and worship and adoration for his grace and his love towards us. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish each other with all wisdom and as you sing psalms, hymns and spiritual hearts, spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. So let's stand and sing together my